BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you broadcasting live from Shelter in Place, my home office in Portland. And to start out, Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is pocan.house.gov, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. You can tweet him at repmarkpocan. And he will be with us for the hour, taking your calls. Congressman Pocan, so what's on your mind today, and what do you see on the legislative agenda and the news horizon that has you excited, worried, or both? Boy, um, lots going on, Tom. I think the biggest thing for us right now is we're trying to finalize this bill to keep the federal government open as well as COVID relief bill. We had an update just this morning. Talks are still going on as Republicans are still dragging their feet. But it looks like I think, you know, we'll be able to get to an agreement as long as they've got some things in there that work and some things that are bad aren't in there. And I think we're seeing some progress on that. One, we feel strongly there should be some stimulus or survival checks, because that's really what it's about is survival. And as a progressive caucus, we had a call last night and um, members were very supportive of saying that's got to be a must for anything to move forward. So, you know, that's going to be crucial happening either this week or if it has to go into early next week. Although, again, I think the hope is that we can just stay in Washington until it's done. And, you know, in the meantime, I guess watching Mitch McConnell and some Republicans finally say that Joe Biden got elected president, I guess better later than never, although it still shows the problem we have with diverting a political party into a cult and then how to turn it back again. They're going to have some real issues moving forward. How does this play out in Congress? I mean, I've never followed you around the halls of D.C. Years ago, Congress was famously collegial, I'd say, you know, certainly pre-Reagan and maybe even through the 80s. And then, you know, particularly when Newt Gingrich came along in 94 and 96, it just became so hyper-partisan, polarized, and, you know, uh, friends and enemies and all this kind of stuff. Do you and other Democrats, and progressives in particular, actually have conversations anymore with your conservative colleagues, from the outspoken crazies like Jim Jordan to just the, you know, kind of -of run-of-the-mill ones? And if so, or if not, what does that say about our state of politics right now and the ability of Congress to get things done? 
I have to answer that in two ways, Tom. One, pre-COVID, uh, no, it's been gotten harder to do that. I mean, you could still run into people in the hallway. Jim Jordan, believe it or not, went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison the same four years I did. I hate to admit that because I love the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but something went wrong wherever he stayed. Uh, you know, we had very different outcomes coming out of there. But, you know, I've been friendly and I could talk to him and yet still strongly disagree. And you try to have those relationships. But COVID has been very different. I mean, we're operating Congress, the House, out of 10,000 different locations with our staffs working out of their homes, committee staffs working out of their homes. And it's just hard to do much of how we've operated. So a lot of power goes into leadership's hands to do some of the final negotiating on these bills. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to when we can get people vaccinated and get back to normal. And then uh, maybe some of the Republicans will, uh, you know, quit drinking the Kool-Aid that Donald Trump's been pouring, and maybe we can get them to operate the way things used to be. But, you know, my fear is now that we're starting to put QAnon people into Congress and Tea Party people are becoming the moderates, uh, we're having some problems on the Republican Party side. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> shades of uh, Marine Le Pen here. Okay, well, let's pick up some phone calls, all right? Sure, absolutely. Okay, Jessica in Chicago, you are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. I would like to know why we shipped out two, okay, why 2.9 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine is out. That's what we have shipped out to the people, the hospitals. But what is ha- I want to know what's happening with the 6.4 million doses our country has. And I know the governors are getting 2 million to proceed with doing the vaccines. But what they really need to execute the 900 million doses, they really need 8.4 billion dollars to get this going and i watched this on face the nation this weekend on saturday with margaret benner and she um so these are facts so thank you for thank you for all it you two are great thank you Thanks, Jessica. Well, thank you, Jessica. And, you know, that's part of the bill, uh, just getting a brief update this morning and where talks are. A lot of that is money for vaccines going to states that will be in this next COVID bill. And I'm, I'm very convinced there will be a COVID bill. We just have to make sure it's a COVID bill that actually works for people and not just corporations like I think, you know, maybe too much did in the CARES Act. And I, I, I do think that this will get expedited uh, in every way we possibly can. I think everyone is on board to getting the vaccines out. I think the bigger challenge, quite honestly, Jessica, is making sure that people will get the vaccines because right now the number of people who are saying they won't from a wide variety of perspectives is pretty troubling if we're going to actually get out of Uh, the situation we're in. So um, there should be funding in this COVID bill that'll help on that. Uh, Absolutely, the vaccines are getting out, uh, although we know that we could have had more for the United States had Donald Trump handled it right a few months ago. Um, But again, uh, we're almost turning that page. I think I was told this morning it's something like 804 hours until Donald Trump's not president anymore. I guess we're counting by the hour at this point. (laughs) And, uh, you know, let's just make sure we're doing the very best we can. I'm, I'm tempted to translate that into minutes. Carol in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, <laughs> you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, Congressman Pocan, I uh, am interested in uh, if we get the, the Senate seats, and it looks really good right now, the U.S. Senate seats, uh, can the Progressive Caucus uh, get, a, get introduced into the House uh, via leverage, uh, because of the numbers in the caucus, 
uh, good ideas like the UBI, Universal Basic Income, Medicare for All, $15 minimum wage, if we get all three branches of the government. Thank you. Yeah, Carol, you brought up, and that is the not just the $100,000 question, the $100 million question is if we pick up those Senate seats, even though the Senate has rules that still can slow things down significantly because of uh, minority party representation, you'd be at 50-50, it'd still be very tight. But short of that, it's going to be much more difficult because you will have Mitch McConnell in the Senate. So we're going to have a much tighter margin in the House. So we don't know the final numbers yet, but it could be like six or eight seats. And right now, with several people being appointed to the administration, we have even less than that. So we're we're skating on a pretty thin margin uh, at this point to be able to, to get things to pass. Because don't forget, we have to make sure that we get all the Democrats to support um, items that we put out there. But we just had some success last night. We pretty much said as a caucus that... That unless there's direct payments, so we might vote against the rule on a, a COVID relief bill. And that was very helpful in, in Speaker Pelosi being able to move forward and get uh, some direct payments. So absolutely, there's things we can do, Carol. But the Senate, it's all about the Senate right now. Amazing. Remarkable. Thank you. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Hartman program. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin, U.S. House of Representatives, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan, and his website is pocan.house.gov. We'll be right back. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Congressman, you seem like a great guy, and I was really relieved to hear that your mom got through her illness okay. So uh, that out of the way. Appreciate that. Um, Yeah, you're welcome. It seems to me that science and conversation are the only two things that can save us from this uh, COVID, and religion seems to be above reason. We know that churches are super spreader events, and to get to my question quickly, are there any atheists in Congress, even one? Yeah, actually, Jared Huffman absolutely has been outspoken, I think, an atheist. But more importantly, we have a, now a Free Thought Caucus. I'm a member of that. And uh, we are trying to make sure that we're actually living by the separation of church and state in every possible way. So. We have a number of members, including people who are of faith and some of us who don't follow religion. And it's been, I think, powerful to finally have that because you're right. You know, what we've seen during COVID and watching what some churches have done, and I say churches, I I should probably be lifting my fingers and, and, and waving them because I think they were more concerned about the proceeds they were taking in than the parishioners who were getting sick. And, you know, that flies in the face, I think, of what they say they're for. So, yes, in Congress, we are starting to finally address some issues from a free thought perspective. We now have a caucus in place, and Jared Huffman is the head of that, and I uh, urge you to follow him. Jared's a great uh, member of Congress. Somewhere Thomas Paine and contemporaries are smiling. Gustavo in Santa Barbara, (laughs) you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, Yes, good morning. How are you guys doing? My question is very quickly, I would like to know if Donald Trump, the president, is going to pardon infinitely 
how many partners does a president get? Yeah, Gustavo, I don't think there's a limit on how many he gets. It's not like there's a bag and then at the bottom there's nothing left if you've given out too many. I think, you know, that's what we're watching right now. I personally am glad that his ego is so tremendous that he's still fighting the election results while everyone else has accepted what happened on November 3rd because it was a substantial win by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But it stopped him from doing other bad things for this many days. So I'm I'm pleased. But I can pretty much guarantee we are going to see more pardons coming out from this president. And the question will be, does he do anything as crazy as pardoning, um, try to pardon himself or his family? Because, of course, if he does that, he's admitting there were crimes. So I think, you know, the reality show called the Donald Trump presidency will continue until January 20th. But he doesn't have a limit that I know of on pardons. Is there any conversation about how Congress would react if he tries to self-pardon or pardon his children for things that they've not even been accused of? Well, you know, I think reasonable members clearly would look at that and, you know, you're admitting you had a crime. And I don't think that would work towards the argument they've had for four years. But then again, I, I serve in the House. I don't necessarily have reasonable colleagues. 126 signed a letter saying uh, Texas should be able to overturn Wisconsin's election results. So I guess it's a mixed bag, Tom. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I get it. We'll be right back with more of your calls to Congressman Pocan in just a moment. Stick around. You can check out his website at pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at rep, as in representative, R-E-P, rep, Mark Pocan. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our book today is How to Get Rid of a President by David Priest, and this is from the chapter Rejected by the Party, starting on page 12, kind of mid-chapter. Presidents need not be thrown out at the polls on Election Day to find themselves dislodged from the White House. History shows us that a chief executive's own political allies can remove that incumbent when they perceive him as unpopular or unfit. Refusing to nominate a president for a second term, or better yet, getting the incumbent to realize that he should walk away before it becomes an embarrassing vote at the convention, does bring the party significant pain. But many politicians have calculated that discarding their own party's toxic president by internal action is better than waiting for the voters to do it. This dynamic remained absent for the first half century or so of American politics. 
George Washington, who didn't represent any formal party, set a precedent by stepping away from re-election after two terms. Successor after successor followed suit, keeping the support of their parties until they left office after eight years. Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and Jackson lost the next election, both Adamses and Van Buren, or met the Grim Reaper, Harrison. John Tyler, if only in this one respect, was a trendsetter. He began a six-president cascade of men who failed to appear on their party's ballot in the general election after their first term. One, Zachary Taylor, literally had no choice. Like Harrison, he died in office. The others, by staying alive through their four-year terms, could have carried their party's banners again on Election Day. Not one did, as national agonizing over slavery and other tensions within each of the major parties made it difficult for any president to build and sustain a governing coalition. Of those five chief executives, only James Polk left with a solid reputation and a ledger of successes. He told Democrats upon his nomination in 1844, I shall enter upon the discharge of the high and solemn duties of the office with the settled purpose of not being a candidate for re-election. And he stayed true to his word. It was just as well, only three months after what would have been his second inauguration, he died at the age of 53. The three presidents who followed Polk, the forgettable series of Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan, shared three characteristics. First, historians routinely rank them among the nation's worst presidents. Second, and related to that, they took no responsibility for resolving the national moral failure of slavery. And third, no matter how they had attained office, they, like future presidents Chester Arthur and Lyndon Johnson, found themselves spurned by their own parties. The Whigs had learned in 1840 that a celebrity candidate seemed to have an easier route into the White House than a party regular. So in 1848, they nominated General Zachary Taylor, a recent hero of battlefields in the Mexican-American War. Despite his lack of solid political principles or any apparent passion for the job, just two years earlier he'd said with apparent sincerity, I am not and never shall be an aspirant for that honor, Taylor won the election over Democratic candidate Lewis Cass. In July 1850, he became the second straight Whig general to president who couldn't make it to the next election alive. Vice President Millard Fillmore took his place. Fillmore had risen to prominence in New York's anti-Mason party dedicated to exposing and opposing Freemason fraternal organizations, but switched allegiance to the Whigs in the 1830s. In the first year and a half of the administration, inter-party rivals had manipulated Taylor better than Fillmore did, leaving him little to do but preside over the Senate and stew over his fate in a useless job. But as president, he was prepared to avenge perceived slights. Ahead of their expected dismissal, all the cabinet members whom Fillard had inherited from Taylor offered their resignations, which were quickly accepted by the new president. He asked them to remain in place for one month. They agreed to stay for one week. Fillmore would proceed to fire more previous political appointees than any of his successors had. More than half of those at the State Department, for example, had to find new jobs. The biggest development during Fillmore's presidency was the Compromise of 1850. This set of bills admitted California to the Union as a free state, allowed the organization of the Utah and New Mexico territories without reference to slavery, resolved both the Texas state boundary and the Lone Star state's remaining debt, abolished the slave trade in the District of Columbia, and reaffirmed the fugitive slave law that required the returning of slaves escaped across state lines. Fillmore signed each bill, believing this package of measures had fixed what he considered an annoying issue that kept getting in the way of his other priorities. The compromise bills delayed a war between the states, but at a cost. They not only perpetuated slavery, but split the Whigs further apart. 
as most Northerners refused to abide by the fugitive slave law. Congressional elections in November 1850 increased the Democratic opposition's majorities in both the House and the Senate. The rest of the president's term was so bad that the highlight might have been the start of Commodore Matthew Perry's voyage to Japan to open that country to American trade, even though he didn't arrive until Fillmore left office. Not long after rising to become the chief executive, Fillmore declared he wouldn't run again in the 1852 election. He reiterated that in 1851. But the trappings of presidential power and the pleas of his remaining party faithful convinced him to retract that pledge and make a late entry into the field of candidates. He portrayed his about-face about as a noble personal sacrifice for the good of the party and the country. And during the spring of that election year, eight Whig state conventions endorsed him. As delegates gathered for what a leading historian of the era calls the longest, most rancorous, and most debilitating Whig national convention ever to meet, the first tally had Fillmore in the lead. How to get rid of a president. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. And uh, David in Denver, Colorado, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, Congressman, I'm curious as to what we're going to do in the next bill for COVID relief for our unhoused population. Because in Denver right now, our mayor is systematically killing our homeless population by, by sweeping them every other day, um, not providing them with any of the services that they need. Um, and, and it's concerning to me that this guy's got this much power um, and what he's doing right now. I mean, we're in a, a large civil rights case that's going on today, right, actually right now as we speak, if they're in court. Um, the governor's being sued, the, the mayor's being sued, and several other people have been named. Um, and it's not getting any, any it's not being talked about. And I just feel like they don't have a voice and they need a voice. Yeah, I, I agree, David. I mean, we need to do much around not just homelessness, but also around evictions to make sure fewer people are homeless, uh, given what's happening. We don't have the final language of what's going to be the agreement because they're still finalizing what this agreement's going to be around COVID. However, I think one thing that we're probably not going to like uh, from what I'm hearing this morning is part of the trade-off to not get these terrible uh, liability protections for big corporations is going to be some of the additional funding going, especially to municipalities. And some of that money probably would have gone to things uh, like housing relief. So um, we may have to wait for when Joe Biden's president in trying to put another bill together when we have a better opportunity to do that. Um, but unfortunately, uh, state and local support, while there still is a number of funds that we understand will be going to states for vaccines, etc. Um, some of what we really wanted to do uh, was the trade-off, I think, that uh, Republicans have put for their liability protection, and we're going to probably have to wait a little longer for that. Now, that's not saying there's not that in this bill yet, because we haven't seen the final uh, agreement, but I, I just hearing that about money going to local governments, um, that tells me we're not going to get as much for some programs that are really important. Susan in Inglis, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Congressman, with this turnout of the inoculations for the two different manufacturers, Pfizer and Modera, their vaccines, I've uh, heard so much about not mixing the two manufacturers' vaccines. And wouldn't it behoove a system that they could issue a card with the manufacturer, the lot, the date of initial inoculation, and then their booster shots that people could carry around with them like they would Red Cross issue a blood donor card with your blood type 
wouldn't that expedite and help people, you know, that are giving the vaccine, make sure that they don't have any uh, mistakes in, in crossing manufacturers? Yeah, Susan, I think that's a great suggestion, right? I think as we're starting to get the vaccines out right now, we're focusing on those frontline workers. Next will be vulnerable populations of seniors and people with at-risk health issues. But I think you make a really strong point because part of the difficulty of doing the getting this vaccine out there to make sure we can go back to hopefully a new normal by, you know, May or June is that we have to have people getting not only uh, the, the vaccine, but that second part of the vaccine that so far all of these are requiring. And of course, uh, as you said, it has to be the, the same type of vaccine. So um, I'm not sure exactly if they're talking about cards or not, but I think you make a very valid suggestion. Douglas in Dewey, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I'd like to bring up something, you know, voter purging in some recent elections has been like a tremendous problem. And is there anything we can do, like if they want to purge, purge like 300,000 people, and like they did in the state of Georgia when Stacey Abrams ran, you know, why not post them on the Secretary of State's website so that way friends and neighbors can contact each other say, hey, your name's on this purge list, and I'll listen to your comments off the air. Thank you. Yeah, Douglas, that's another great suggestion, although I would even take it a step further. Why are we actively trying to purge as many voters in some areas? Because often the, the areas that are trying to purge voters are doing it to try to select uh, who's voting for their elected officials rather than the other way around, right? I think there's been so much abuse of these purge lists. Uh, we do address it in H.R. 1, uh, the bill that the first bill we introduced this Congress and will likely be the first bill we introduce next Congress again. And uh, I, I do think we want to stop what we saw with um, you know, many of these states in, in purging names, and we have that addressed specifically, not just in H.R. 1, but another bill where we trim back uh, the provisions just to election reform, because H.R. 1 included campaign finance and ethics reform as well. So Congress is agree in full agreement with where you're at, Douglas, and I think that's the bigger question, is do we really need to do the purges like we're doing? And if you're going to do them, why wouldn't we do them in a sensible way? Yeah, let me flag something for you. Now that Greg Palace has busted their purges and it's in court right now in Georgia, they've got a new strategy that Donald Trump has been promoting fairly loudly. And that is on mail-in ballots saying, this signature doesn't look like it matches if it came from a black area in particular. And this is going to be the new strategy of the Republican Party to suppress the vote. You can take yeah. that to the bank. And that needs to get into your legislation as well, because that's... Boy, no, they are thank just, you for that. That's a great, great point. Yeah, yeah. Congressman Mark Pocan with us. Stick You're around. Listening to the Tom Hartman program. It's our national town hall meeting with Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. We'll be back with more of your calls for the congressman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On this week's Science Revolution, Vien Trong with Tom Steyer's Climate Justice joins the show with a vision for a green, red, and blue climate new deal. That vision includes Native Americans, a blue new deal for our threatened oceans, and a green new deal for our coastal communities. Dr. Michael Greger joins us. Have you gained a few COVID pounds in his new How Not to Diet cookbook? Dr. Greger tells how you can eat your way to a healthy, sustainable weight with plant-based meals. Terry Mills, president of the National Nursing Network, drops by on why a national nurse for public health is important. Plus, Laura Packard, the founder of Healthcare Voices, explains open enrollment under the ACA to help the 16 plus million uninsured Americans get themselves enrolled. Tune into the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Welcome back. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. And uh, Barbara in Chicago Heights, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning. My question is about the emergency use approval status for the cocktail that Rudy Giuliani just got, because, you know, we have 3,000 people dying every day, but they're not getting this life-saving medicine. So what's the status of that? Yeah, I honestly don't know what the status is other than they are fast-tracking everything when it comes to COVID. And I want to say this is a giant asterisk. By fast-track, I don't mean cutting corners. It's that they're eliminating some of the time delays that you normally have in a process. Uh, Just like the vaccine, things have really, for the type of vaccine that is out there now, they've been in the works for 10 years, not specifically to COVID-19, but the type of vaccine that now they're able to put out there. So nothing has been rush to make it unsafe. I just want to put that part out because I think a number of people still think that. Um, but in the case of uh, Rudy Giuliani, it's, it's unfortunately like so many people of privilege, they can get access to the best treatments that aren't even necessarily approved for everyone else yet. And uh, I know that they are fast tracking those. And I, I hope that everything like that will be available as soon as possible. And I do believe that is the goal of the FDA right now. Joseph in Orlando, Florida, you're on the air with Congress in Pokemon. Good morning, Congressman. I don't know how Wisconsin has gone. Have they gotten on board with this national popular vote movement? And if not, are you supporting it? Anyone interested, just Google national popular vote to get the details. Yeah, um, I do support it. Uh, Wisconsin won't because we have a gerrymandered legislature right now. And given what we just saw with all the lawsuits from Donald Trump state by state, you know, we've saw how problematic someone wants to throw a wrench into the, the process. They can certainly try. The good news is, for the most part, we saw those cases thrown out. In Wisconsin, though, our Supreme Court actually heard it last weekend and ruled literally hours before our electors decided on Monday, and it was a 4-3 vote. We were one vote off from having, you know, the Supreme Court justices be partisan hacks uh, rather than following the law. So, you know, I, I completely agree with you. You know, we've had at least several instances in, the, in my recent adult life where the person who got the most votes didn't win the election, and trying to explain that to people doesn't make a lot of sense. I support your efforts. 
Brandon in Jacksonville, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. It's Jacksonville, Illinois. Much appreciated to you both. Oh, Illinois. I'm sorry. I was a first-time caller on the bootstraps uh, episode in 2016. I'm on disability after a two-month coma from during between welding jobs that left me with a $321,000 bill. And since then, I've taken Tom Hartman's tag, you're it, to heart. I'm just filed for a full term on city council. I was elected to city council in 2019. I was elected precinct committee person in March of this year in the primary. I was appointed precinct committee person in 2018. I filed for state representative against uh, incumbent in an 80% conservative area this November. And there's an effort going around. It's called force the vote. My tweet was retweeted by NFL charger Justin Jackson and Jimmy Dore this weekend. It said 97 members of the Progressive Caucus and none will hold their vote from Nancy Pelosi to get Medicare for all. 126 Republicans just asked SCOTUS to overturn the election. Republicans have tried. Brandon, what's your question? I'm asking Representative Pocan if he would force the vote on Medicare for all. The CPC chair is now the author of that bill, 1384. Got it. Thank you. Congressman? Yeah, well, thank you, Brandon. First of all, I mean, congratulations on uh, running for office and for being appointed to the city council. Um, it's imperative uh, having a seat at the table matters. So I, I'm glad you asked this because a few weeks ago someone asked this, and there's a former comedian with a YouTube show who, for clickbait, is is putting out some really bad information about this. And I really would love to address it because I think what's really important is I am one of the co-sponsors of Medicare for All. Pramila Jaipal is the author of the bill. She is the chair of the Progressive Caucus. And we've got, we've got a caucus for Medicare for All. We want to get this done. And I think it'll be done in the next I don't know, decade is what I'm going to predict. The problem is right now we have 118 sponsors to the bill. We need to get a 218 votes in order to pass something. So I can tell you already that we don't have enough votes. So we can do what this person is recommending, but it's not strategic because what will happen is if you force a vote on something, this is why we don't put things on the floor just to lose, is you're going to make a bunch of people who don't support it vote no, and it's harder to ever get them to vote yes. So you don't want to have them publicly voting no. We need to get more people to support Medicare for all in Congress. The public is there, but we need to have the people lead on this and put pressure on people to co-sponsor the bill. But we don't need a list of who doesn't support it. I can already tell you, we have 118 sponsors. We don't have the votes to pass it on the floor of Congress. And I don't want to make people wind up voting no, then that are going to be much more difficult to ever get them to yes. But this is a bad strategy that's put out there. And I think it's really more about getting clickbait than trying to pass the bill. But many good hearted people who want to see Medicare for all are are kind of saying, well, why aren't we doing this? Well, that's why we don't. There's many bills we don't put to the floor if you don't want them simply to lose. So uh, that's uh, why we're doing it. Also, if this person was serious about it, you'd contact the author of the bill, Pramila Jayapal, or the groups that have been leading on this, none of which support this effort, because it will hurt the cause in the long run. And this person also thinks it's okay if Kevin McCarthy becomes a speaker by withholding our vote for Nancy. But if you do that, the speaker sets every bill that goes onto the floor, that would be disastrous to everything we want to get done in the next two years. So there's a lot of illogic that's offered out there um, on this proposal. What we need people to do is help us get more people to be sponsors of that bill so we can indeed pass it. But attacking the greatest promoters of Medicare for All instead of going after people who should be supporting it 
is a misguided effort. And I think many good-hearted people, again, who want to see Medicare for All are listening to this. And I think I, I would recommend you help us get the sponsors we need so we can eventually pass this bill. But simply putting a bill on the floor, simply to lose so we have a list of who doesn't support it, we already have that by sponsors, and we need to be strategic. And there's a reason why the groups and the members of Congress who support this aren't jumping for this idea. This is an idea for one person who thinks they have a great idea. I just dealt with a guy for the last four years who was just like this. Instead, let's get people who aren't on the bill on the bill as sponsors. Let's get this done. Clearly, the public supports this. This pandemic has showed us the need for it. But to uh, do something misguided that will hurt us in the long run is not strategy. It's simply selfish. I think the theory is that if you put people on the record, you can use that to primary them and replace, you know, like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did with, uh, what was the guy's name that she replaced? Joe Crowley. Uh, Yeah, Joe Crowley. Thank you. You know, his record was pretty bad, you know, and so that bad record provided a space for him to take his place. Is there any credibility to that theory? You already could do that, right? If they're not supporting it, you could, you, you know that, right? They're not a sponsor of the bill. You can ask them, would you vote for Medicare for All? And if they're not a sponsor, they're no. We already have the list. So that's not necessarily right. going to change those races. And that's why people like AOC uh, are also saying the same thing that I'm saying and why Bernie Sanders is saying the thing. But the same person is attacking AOC and attacking Bernie, calling them names. Yeah, none of that gets us to Medicare for All. I want to get to Medicare for All, but we need more sponsors so we can ultimately so, have more so, votes and, to get to the 218. Yeah, so to use a war analogy as much as I dislike them, before you go to battle, make sure that you've got all the weapons and all the, all the troops that you need, basically, is what you're saying. Yes, and, and what we need are more sponsors of the bill, which we would love to have people help us get. Don't attack your friends. Go after the people who aren't there. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This book in the Tom Harbin Book Club is All Politics is Local, Why Progressives Must Fight for the States by Megan Winter. And this is from the introduction. On February 20, 2018, six days after 17 people were shot and killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Representative Keon McGee, a Democrat from Miami, stood on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives. Looking on from the gallery above were Parkland students who had traveled over 400 miles by bus to Tallahassee with the hope of persuading their state lawmakers to pass gun reforms in Florida. McGee asked the assembly to vote on a bill that would have banned assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith of Orlando, where a gunman had killed 49 and wounded another 53 people in the Pulse nightclub in 2016, had sponsored the bill, whose chances would expire unless the House bent its usual protocol and acted right at that moment. The shooting at Parkland demands extraordinary action, McGee told the assembly. He was trying a technical procedural maneuver, one that might have worked in an alternate reality without partisan politics. But everyone who understood what it meant that Republicans held a supermajority in the Florida assembly knew what would come next. Richard Corcoran, the Republican Speaker of the House, interrupted McGee. A few minutes later, the House voted on a party lines, 71 to 36, not to consider the assault weapons ban. In the gallery, students began to cry. On Twitter, student leader Emma Gonzalez wrote, the anger that I feel right now is indescribable. Something unusual was happening. With their eloquence, temerity, and rage, the Parkland students had seized national attention. Major news networks and papers dispatched reporters to cover their calls for change. 
at week in February, even before knowing that hundreds of thousands of students nationwide would soon walk out of their schools and through the streets, the American public paid attention to what was happening in Tallahassee, Florida. And yet from another advantage, the scene in the Florida Capitol that day was not at all unusual. In state houses, it is not uncommon to watch someone sit before a panel of elected officials, hold up a placard of a dead child killed by opioids or lack of insurance or a gun, and plead for the passage of a bill that will inevitably not move out of committee because it does not fit within the political calculus of the Assembly's leadership. In those hearing rooms, ordinary people often share in breathtaking impotence. Three weeks before the Parkland students arrived in Tallahassee, for example, the Florida Senate Judiciary Committee discussed the Rule of Law Adherence Act, which would have required all local government officials, explicitly including employees of the state university system, to turn over information about immigrants to federal immigration officials. The bill was similar to those shopped around the country by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, an organization that since the 1970s has written experimental conservative state legislation. Alex's corporate members included Geo Group, the largest provider of detention services for immigration and customs enforcement, ICE, and a major donor to Florida Republicans in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. In 2016, the federal government decided to stop contracting with private prisons because the Department of Justice investigation had found they were unsafe. But after Trump's inauguration in early 2017, Geo Group received $774 million worth of contracts to run federal prisons. On January 30th, 2018, the day that the Florida immigration bill was considered in Tallahassee, so many people showed up that the hearing room reached capacity. Muslim students and Latino farm workers and their teenage children who had traveled hours to testify against the bill were not allowed into the packed room. Expressionless, they watched the proceedings on a television mounted in a hallway as Florida Senator Aaron Bean stood at the podium and said that his bill means criminals will be kept off the streets. The bill did not advance in what counts as a victory, in part because in 2011, immigrant rights groups staged weeks-long protests in Tallahassee to oppose a bill modeled after the Arizona's 2010 law that allowed police officers to ask for immigration papers if they suspected someone was undocumented. The Florida legislature didn't pass a new aggressive anti-immigration law until 2019, when it gave the state the power to sue local law enforcement that refused to detain people according to orders from federal immigration officials. The next day, January 31st, Floridians concerned about sea level rise arrived in Tallahassee by the busload to ask their legislators to pass a raft of proactive climate change bills. Many were college students or recent graduates who had grown up along the coast and understood that the window of opportunity for stalling climate change was rapidly closing. During their lifetimes, they told me, their hometowns would be radically altered, if not sunken. By the end of the legislative session that March, none of the bills they wanted were passed. Even though just 10 years ago, it was all but mandatory for both Democrats and Republicans in Florida to at least make overtures about the need for proactive environmental laws. Similar scenes play out in hearing rooms across the country, usually unrecognized by the American public. Beneath the tumult of the Trump presidency, state lawmakers have largely kept their course. As Alex's own website explained in 2017, quote, state legislatures around the country have made significant progress passing bills on issues such as immigration, policing, and health care, even as Republicans in Congress and President Trump have struggled to make similar progress at the federal level, end of quote. 
After decades of state-based campaigns coordinated by libertarian and Republican operatives and disinvestment in the states, right-wing politicians have swept control of state houses. All politics is local. Let's see here. Deborah in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You're on the Earth Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Uh, just to let you know, I love your book reports, but you need to read out of your books a little more. Okay. Congress. <laughs> I haven't heard, and I wondered if anyone in Congress or any other governmental department has any information about how long the vaccines provide immunity. Um, I know they're new, but it would be good to know that kind of information. Um, so have you heard anything? It's a great question, Deborah, and I don't think we know. In fact, I've heard Dr. Fauci say we're not sure yet. So this could be something where you're going to get immunized on a more regular basis. However, we also know that if enough people do get immunized, you can also uh, help to make sure that COVID-19 goes away by that and uh, it won't be able to spread as easily. No, we don't know how long I think it's going to last for. The good news is we do know it's like 95% effective. We know that it's working and it's going to be able to work to make sure that we can reopen our country in many ways. But I don't think we have the answer yet of how long it's going to be good for. David in Spotsford, New Jersey. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, good afternoon. Nancy Pelosi, I mean, not to be blamed, she said that um, any stimulus bill well, you know, she said this prior to the election would be retroactive to September. I don't know what's coming out. I'm I'm not clear, but it sounds like that the unemployment, the extra unemployment, is going to be on a going forward basis. It, my question is: Is that to lock out Joe Biden from doing a stimulus bill when he gets in? Thanks. Hmm. Yeah, David, it's not clear. We did ask what kind of support, uh, and they're still negotiating this. So we don't, I don't have an answer for you on it. And it's as of just this morning, we asked that very question, how much would be available via unemployment and also on the stimulus or a survivor check. And, and it's still negotiated. So unfortunately, I can't give you a good answer. Well, let's see here. Dylan in Saline, Michigan. You, we just have a minute, Dylan. You got a real quick question for Congressman Pocan, please. I do. Thank you, uh, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Quick comment. See what you think. Um, we know that uh, the Republicans are trying to do this liability reform, so, so-called li- liability reform. Maybe we um, look at adding a sunset provision to it that could let us define it over a six-month period and potentially prevent them from parlaying that into uh, bigger reform. Also, it, it may allow us to add messaging where we know that the Republicans are sunsetting Donald Trump's tax cuts for uh, working people. We could hammer that home as well. What do you think? Yeah, Dylan, I'll tell you, I think the best week, if we can get there to be no liability provision, it would be the best thing. It's a manufactured issue, but it could have a lot of bad ramifications. There have been some people who've been awful employers and to give them immunity, I think, would be a really bad idea. And it shows that Mitch McConnell's constituents are corporations, not not actual people. Uh, So I I understand what you're saying. If we're going to have it, let's scale it back. But if we cannot have it at all, that'd be the best. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. Uh, Pocan.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives and is co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan.
Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. End quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the day. Gene in Jackson, Missouri. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. I was listening to you last week, and you talked quite a bit about the uh, $15 minimum wage. And the, the question and the problem I have, first of all, I'm all, I'm all for people getting an increase. Um, if you go from uh, right now, the federal is $7 and something, but if you just take that as $8, you take a $7 increase. That's $14,400 a year increase to the minimum wage. And the there's $28 million on minimum wage. There's $65 million on Social Security. Nobody says anything about the Social Security. Social Security people, in six years, the largest increase I've got is $38 a month, which is not even $200 a year. The other thing, the prices are not going to remain the same. So now you got, instead of a $5 hamburger, you got $10 hamburger, and the seniors are paying, the, got the same income, trying to buy a $10 hamburger. Uh, and a lot of those people on minimum wage move back in with their grandparents. And they have to support them, too. So uh, what do you think about the disparity in it? Yeah, Gene, so there's a number of fallacies in there, I think, just from what you know often gets put out there when people try to attack increasing minimum wage. First of all, the bill increases it up to 2023, and that could change in the next Congress. But so it wouldn't automatically go to 15 instantly. So that would resolve some of it. Secondly, every time we've had an increase in the minimum wage in Wisconsin, for example, more people have entered uh, the workplace, and uh, we haven't had uh, the problems that you brought up. Third, uh, part of the increase of Social Security is tied to the consumer price index and other issues, including um, uh, salaries. So therefore, there would be some increases to that. And it's just not true that prices go up automatically because you're going to have more money in the hands of people who are most likely to spend it. And that stimulates the economy and creates additional demand. So, um, you know, I, I think the real issue for us is if we don't pick up those Senate seats, it's going to be hard to increase minimum wage with a Republican Senate, which is ridiculous because we've waited a decade to do it. One of the things that can happen, though, is Joe Biden could increase the minimum wage for federal contractors, and that would help put pressure on others to increase wages. So we have to look at every strategy we can to increase the wage, because I think it's ridiculous that it's been well over a decade and we're still on 735. And don't forget, for, for wait, waiters and waitresses, uh, for, for tip staff, 235 an hour. That's a ridiculous wage. Mike in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, good afternoon or good morning, gentlemen. Um, I today is my birthday. I am happy birthday. Happy birthday. Years, thank you. And I'm 66 years old. And every day that I've been on this earth, they have been suppressing the black vote. 
back before the time I was born. This this thing has been going on. Why can't an organization, a group, or someone can file a lawsuit or an injunction to stop them from suppressing our votes? We know, we talk about it every election, what they do to the black vote. Everybody knows this. Why can't we stop the Republicans from doing this? We have a right. We have a right as Americans. It made me think about uh, the coach from the, the Clippers who made that comment about if you, why do we love this country when this country don't love us? Why do we stick our necks out, our lives out for this country and it won't return the love and affection that we have for this country, they don't return it. They do everything that they can to stop us from voting. It's not Great question, fair. Mike. Thank you very much for the question. Yeah, Mike, again, happy birthday to you. And you're, you're exactly right. The problem is they're clever how they do it. They don't just say they're doing it because they're racist or because they don't want uh, African-Americans to be able to vote. They always cover it in something else, usually about some manufactured fraud. And as Tom just mentioned, now it's about matching signatures. They're always going to find a way to try to pick their voters rather than the way it's supposed to be voters picking their elected officials. That's why we did the bill called HR1, which is the most comprehensive campaign finance, ethics and elections reform bill ever introduced. We have to put forth provisions that deal with this across the country so that you don't have whack-a-mole, you know, state by state going after people, trying to kick people uh, off of uh, ballots uh, or off of uh, voting uh, lists, etc. That's why I introduced a constitutional amendment to guarantee a right to vote, to make it harder for any uh, unit of government to go after someone's ability to vote because we don't actually have an explicit right in the Constitution right now. So you pointed out the right problem, Mike. I hope by your next birthday we can try to solve this. Uh, a lot will depend on what happens in Georgia, but uh, I think it's a rather disgusting and sad state of political affairs that you want people not to vote in elections in order to try to win. Congressman, we just have 15 seconds. Uh, thoughts on the coming week? Uh, just there's going to be a lot of activity around COVID, uh, Bill, and, uh, you know, Follow Congress and tell them that you want survivor payments to go out. If we're going to help corporations, we can help people. Amen. Congressman Mark Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today. It's always great having you on. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, 
fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler, or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively, stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waived the banner of voter fraud. In earlier times, to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants. 
Today, it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed, as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters, and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America, by Alan J. Lichtman. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.